Hello and welcome to the Cine Skinny. It's the podcast from the team behind the Skinny magazine. It's Jamie Dunn here, standing in for Peter Simpson, who's off on a well-earned holiday in Barcelona. We're also down another player, as Anne Burroughs isn't feeling great, so she's not in today. But, Lewis Robertson, you are my saviour. Hello. It's not just going to be me monologuing for an hour, which no. would be horrible. It's going to be the two of us. It's going to be... I know we've done sort of interstitial dial-ins and, and like interviews and stuff like that, but I think this is the first two-person episode, is that right? It is, yeah. We're breaking new ground. The two best hosts of the Cine Skinny. Yeah, I mean, we, d- we don't need those other two. Yeah. Let's, 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 <laughs> let, you know, this could be the, the new the new era. Yeah, we're going to get loads of requests. Don't bring Peter back, exactly. whatever you do. Exactly. We're sick of his joke and his, <laughs> his funny banter. We don't want it. And we don't want Anna Heat's great insight yeah. and like <laughs> in- intelligence. You know, it's, we don't need it. It's just too much. It's, yeah. um, so we are recording this week's episode once again at EHFM in Summer Hall. So a massive thanks to the EHFM team, particularly Jamie Pettiger, who sorts us out every week with uh, great equipment. If you want to listen to EHFM, you should do on ehfm.live. We heartily recommend it. Basically, all the cool people I know in Edinburgh have a show on mm-hmm. EHFM. So, Including yeah. us. Well, <laughs> we're, we're not quite on the station yet. I don't know if that's in the works, but we're, we're definitely record here. So mm-hmm. we, I feel like part of the family. Yeah. Before we kick off, we've got a few thank yous. Um, we are recording on Tuesday, so our Medusa Deluxe screenings haven't happened yet. But projecting to the future, Spider-Verse style, we're going to say thank you for everyone who came along to the Medusa Deluxe screenings this weekend. We're sure it was a massive success. <laughs> they are sold out, so hopefully you all come along and have a great time. The Cine Skinny Film Club will be back uh, in September. We're taking a little break, um, but we are back in September. So keep an eye on the skinny.co.uk for info on what we'll be screening in September. Um, subscribe to our newsletter uh, to hear all about the screenings first and also get Anna Heat's amazing weekly zap. Do we ever plug that on here? I don't think... Maybe, We, we probably should. This is a great place to plug yeah. Anna Heat's Check out the zap. great newsletter. Uh, anything else we need to plug? I don't think so. I think you'd probably know better than I would. Um, I I mean, I think you're overestimating <laughs> my, my knowledge of what the goings on at the skinny. But... Uh, it's running like a well-oiled machine. Exactly. I'm sure there's nothing else to plug. You know all about it. We, we're sort of great at yeah. putting out information. So we'll go sh- straight in. So, Lewis, what have you been watching? Uh, well, a couple weeks ago, because I think we've had a longer time since recording than usual, I caught what must have been one of the last screenings of Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. I'm really ga- glad I got the chance to watch it. I'm really excited for it to come to like a streaming service just because it, it was instantly like a comfort film to me. I think that the reason why big high fantasy like swords and spells sort of films are more popular in games than than films is probably something to do with the fact that like what people like about these worlds is all the details and the lore and the background and the factions and their rivalries and this evil order and this big army. Um, and when it comes to games, you can usually go through them at your own pace if you don't like the you know, if you're playing Skyrim or something and you don't like the dwarven dungeons, you don't have to spend any time in them. You can go to the vampire's castle. But films, no one really cares. Like, the the problem with fantasy films is either you're a massive nerd and the film doesn't dive enough into the scope of the world to satisfy you, or you're not a nerd and it's really dense and dorky. And I don't know how they've, nav- uh, like, circumnavigated this problem, but they have. Maybe because Dungeons & Dragons is such like a versatile game, like it really doesn't have much of an identity by itself. It's just whoever plays it brings something new to it. But they've just created a really fun film. It's not too silly. It has like emotional beats. It's not like trod on by Avenger-style quips. 
But the set pieces are really interesting. Chris Pine, Hugh Grant, they're having a great time. There's a found family. There's a like a male and female lead who co-parent a kid, but they're platonic friends with no romantic undertone, which is really refreshing. I know everybody's already seen this film and everyone quite likes it, but I'm I, you know I'm glad I caught it. It's obviously like not the most like groundbreaking film, but to me it's the most successfully light-hearted film that's come out this year so far. It's like perfect flat party film night fodder. Uh, so I fully recommend that. What have you been watching? Well, I was just going to say, on that film, that was like the surprise of the year for me because this, mm-hmm. this trailer looked so bad. It looked it was going to be terrible. Again, there's like nothing about it that should work really. Yeah. Like, it, again, it's not groundbreaking. It's like there's an evil wizard and there's like, you know, they have to go into a dungeon. There's a dragon. Surprise, surprise. But yeah, it's just like nothing about it feels tired. Nothing about it feels phoned in. It really feels like everyone's just putting their whole heart into it. And it's it's just a, a blast. Yeah, I, I realised it was going to be good when I saw it was from the, the directors of Game Night. I don't know if you saw that. Of yours I've ago. not seen Game Night. I worked in a cinema when it came out yeah. and like not many people went to see it, but the ones who did really seemed to enjoy it. Game Night is my favourite like Hollywood comedy of the last wow. 10 years. So, okay, I'm going to have to check yeah. it out. And Dungeon Dragons isn't quite as good, but it's very good. I can well, it's the thing where, like, you know, I was watching this and I'm like, this is like a great little team of characters. I'd love to just see them get into all sorts of shenanigans. I feel like this has got, like, some great, like, potential. And then, obviously, because it's successful, they've gone and come out and said, oh, we're doing a sequel, we're doing a spin-off, we're doing a series. And I'm just like, well, it's going to be shit. <laughs> like, it shows how just completely cynical I am towards franchises that I watch a piece of media that's so franchise-ready, and I really want there to be a franchise, but the second they announce that there's going to be a franchise, I'm like, well, it's not going to be as good as the first film, is it? Because it was just like a nice, pleasant surprise. I'm happy enough to just watch Honor Among Thieves over and over again. I don't need to see, like, their take on The Witcher. Exactly. Um, yeah, I have been watching Big Boys. I don't know if you saw that TV show. It's, it's a couple of years old now, I think. Is it the one with the the guy who plays James in Derry Girls? Yes. Yeah. yeah, so this came out last year. Last year. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally missed me by, but I was just like bored and looking for something to watch like mm-hmm. before bed, like kind of like comedy. And I was going through Channel 4. And yeah, this I thought this was kind of lovely. It's like by Jack Rook, who's a comedian I don't know, but... Um, it's basically based on his life. It's about two guys at university, one's straight, one's gay. And it's just a really kind of sweet show about male friendship and loss and kind of finding your tribe at university, which is something that I feel like a lot of things are about, but don't really do well. And I feel this did it, mm-hmm. you know, a, a really good job of like communicating how that feels. Um, so it's, it's funny. It's got some really kind of bittersweet moments. It's, it's kind of perfect show to wind down to before bed because the episodes are really short. They're 20 minutes. And it's, it's it's funny, but it's like built around characters and, and like the uni experience and it all kind of rang true to me. So I, I for a sitcom, I thought it had like a lot, lot of heart, a lot of sweetness. It was quite uplifting. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, it's not kind of cynical in any way, but it's not kind of sentimental either. Yeah, I would highly recommend it. I feel like it kind of got overlooked. But uh, Yeah, I, I have to admit, I mean, I guess I overlooked it because I remember when it came out, I thought it sounded interesting and I'd be down to watch it. It was just one of those things I never got around to watching it. Is... The the kid, um, what's his name? Uh, is it Dan- Dylan Llewellyn? Dylan Llewellyn, who's James from yeah, in between uh, Derry Girls. Is he just pretty much the same performance that he gives in Derry Girls? It's basically yeah. yeah he's like I a, got that vibe from it. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it definitely seems like he's got a a type. Yeah, he's James but gay. Basically. James but gay. It's, yeah. it's like a gay James. Yeah. It's like exactly the same, but it kind of works. You know, like he's like um he has a kind of real naivety and a real kind of sweetness to him, which. Uh, which is totally charming, you yeah. know, like, like, uh, it's like, he's, he's a very disarming 
actor. I don't know if he can actually do other roles, but in this role, he's great. Mm. I'll definitely check it out then. So, there was a big movie out this week. Mm -hmm. You've already referenced it once so far this episode. Have I? You said let's travel into the future for the Medusa Deluxe screenings. My God, (laughs) that was like that was a great joke. I should have I should have remembered I made that. But but this thing when I host these things, I'm all like like I'm black I'm blacking out. I actually can't remember what I'm saying. I find this so terrifying. I don't know how Peter does every week. Yeah, he's like it really is a surprise when we edit them and listen back and like oh I didn't realize I said that. Yeah, but this is incredibly nerve wracking. So viewers or viewers listeners, bear with me. So Across the Spider-Verse, the sequel to the amazing Into the Spider-Verse from uh, 2018 uh, is out this week. People are rushing to see it. You may have seen it already. So in that in that 2018 f- film, Into the Spider-Verse, Miles Morales is Spider-Man. And along with several, several other versions of Spider-Man, he saved the day and stopped the Spider-Verse from collapsing. Or so we thought. In this new installment, Miles discovers that there's an elite team of Spider-Men working together to keep the world from falling apart and he might hold the key to everything. So, Shamek Moore, once again, voices Miles. Hayley Steinfeld is Gwen Stacy. And there are some other voices you'll hear, like Oscar Isaac, who is Miguel O'Hara, who's this kind of vampiric Spider-Man from the future. Jason Schwartzman plays the new baddie Spot. Daniel Kalula um, is great as Hobie, this kind of punk rock Spider-Man, who looks like he stepped out of a Clash album. This film slaps, mm-hmm. I think, is uh, how a lot of people are describing it. Lewis, did you think it slapped? I did think it slapped, but I have lots of interesting thoughts. <laughs> I did think it slapped, little asterisk. So, okay, I'm going to be very careful not to spoil anything, but I can probably spoil the first one, right, Into the Spider-Verse 2017. It was unlike any superhero film we'd ever seen before. Pretty early on, the one and only Spider-Man just dies. He gets killed Quite violently. It's not like the Avengers where it's like, now we need to get the Infinity Stone so we can bring him back. It's like very adult. It's like very final. And the only one who can stop the Kingpin is this kid who knows nothing about being Spider-Man. He clashes with this other Spider-Man who is, you know, he's he's Spider-Man, but he's not heroic. He's he's like a, a, a sort of bum. Uh, who So we're just really interested in anything this guy has to say because it's so uncharacteristic of Spider-Man. It's darker. The character's have such, like, clear, desperate motivations. The villains are great. I mean, there's the Kingpin, who's physically imposing. He's this giant brick guy. His henchman, the Prowler, is what I think the scariest on-screen supervillain, who has this, like, foghorn sound. He's just nuts. I liked the new Spider-Verse film, but it's not on that level, is the truth. It's about Miles trying to balance superhero life with his domestic life, which really isn't anything new. And it takes for a while for the film to sort of reveal its theme. Like, we don't really know what the central conflict is. We don't really know what people's motivations are in very clear ways. And it also takes ages for us to even realize who the big villain is. Um, I I don't think it's unreasonable to go into this film wondering, after the masterpiece of Spider-Verse 2017, where where are they going? You know, what room is there for this franchise to grow in? There is some room. The visuals are just nuts. They're fantastic. There's this, they've sort of proved they've got this formula down to a T. It's this never-ending treasure chest of art styles to render different characters and their worlds in. We're pretty quickly introduced to the Vulture, but he's like a Leonardo da Vinci sketch. I don't even know what you'd call that, because it's not steampunk. Yeah, like like, it's like parchment. Parchment punk. (laughs) (laughs) But the script is a little weaker than it was before. You know, stakes... They just don't feel as serious. 
characters kind of bicker. They're just sort of pointlessly antagonistic to each other without really being clear why. And now again, being careful about spoilers, don't think this is a spoiler. There is a third film that's been announced, right? So some of the coolest characters that we see in this film in Across the Spider-Verse, they're just introduced in one scene and then that's it. And you realize that they're just being set up for the big finale in the third film. So it's it's a really long film. It's like two and a half hours long of pretty much just teeing up to a grand finale that we don't actually see. All the stuff that they introduce is really, really cool. You just don't really get to see it pay off. So it's left me in this really, really interesting position of it's definitely not as good as the first one, but it has definitely left me excited for the third one. I think that's pretty fair. Like, um, I mean, I, I, I've got to say, just as a visual experience, I think these films are incredible. You know, um, they operate in just such a high level compared to other superhero movies. You know, it's not even close. Mm-hmm. Like, like for example, the opening section of this film, interestingly, uh, fo- uh, focuses on Gwen Stacy rather than Miles. So the first, like, 20 minutes, I would say, maybe even longer, is set in Gwen's world, which is beautifully rendered. It's like soft uh, paint, pastel colour. The kind of paint is running and nothing's sort of... Uh, like crystal clear, but it's really beautiful. Yeah, and it's rendered in a style that's just just really unique. It's all kind of smudges and soft focus, and it, and it introduces Gwen Stacy's origin story in miniature, really. So it's like a mini movie within a movie. Um, and like you see, it has this kind of amazing fight with Vulture and uh, and the Guggenheim, mm-hmm. um, which is just beautifully rendered. Um, and and I felt like every set piece in the film is jaw dropping. Um, you know, it's the, the real s- strength of the film is the way it blends the language of comic books with the language of film. So throughout the film, there'll be these kind of little bubbles that pop up on screen or the screen will split, split into like panels where we get several perspectives or it'll kind of freeze on an image, which is a bit like, you know, we've opened a comic book and we've just got like this kind of splash panel. Mm-hmm. So all that is absolutely gorgeous. Um, but I do agree it was a little bit lacking in terms of the compelling story from the first one. And I think I think you're right. It's probably because this feels like a middle section. It's like it feels like a, we've watched like two hours of of a four hour movie. It's it's got it's got the same problem as like something like the two towers. Um, that you know, um, the kind of uh, Lord of the Rings second part. You know, it, it it's just not satisfying because mm-hmm. we we know that the story's not complete in the way that the first. Um, episode is really satisfying and the third episode is really satisfying because they have conclusions mm-hmm. um so yeah that 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 didn't work for me but in saying all that i was just astonished while, while i watched it i mean uh, uh, it's not just the animation that's that's good in the film though i think the character work is also mm-hmm. wonderful you know I, I agree maybe the script isn't as strong but mills morales i think is a really great well-rounded character much more interesting than any Pete, peter parker on screen you know obviously like in in this film the main threat is the idea that the multiverse might be collapsing but the film is also interested in these kind of smaller stakes you know so it's about the messiness of uh, adolescence it's about loneliness it's about kind of the stressful business of growing up not just being spider-man but the stressful business of trying to satisfy your parents trying to get like straight a's at school being the best you can without like letting people down and i think that's like a big part of of, the comic books like uh, you know i think that's why um spider-man is like quite often people's favorite superhero because he's the most realistic he's the most down to earth Mm -hmm. you know he's the neighborhood spider-man and this this really leans into that you know i also love just like how funny and cool it is you know like let's say you've got like these endless new versions of spider-man we have a kind of spin hindi spider-man who lives in a new york version um like which looks a bit like mumbai 
um, you know, that's that's hilarious. There's a section in which which is in the trailer um, set at this kind of HQ of Spider Man, mm-hmm. where we have all is it Spider Man or Spider Man? So I never actually know. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> but but you know, so we have like like endless jokes mm-hmm. about different Spider Man, all rendered in different animation styles. Some ridiculous. There's a T Rex Spider Man. Yeah. There's a cat Spider Man. <laughs> you know, but like, and and there's just tons of little in jokes that I don't want to spoil, but like people will be delighted by. Yeah, it. again, trying not to spoil things. Like I have a bit of a bugbear when it comes to film and TV of characters who the the film is doing everything it possibly can to signal to you that this character is cool. And I was rolling my eyes a little bit when Spider-Punk came in with Daniel Kaluuya and I was sort of like, well, they've just made him look fantastic. Um, and obviously he's like this sort of like really, you know, devil may care, really cool guy. But then, you know, I was, I was, I think I was resisting it a little bit, but then he actually like functions in the script as a punk character. Like he has a very punk ideology. He disrupts the plot in a very punk way. Um, the characters are fantastic. They're performed really well. Again, I, I, I kind of like was um, skeptical when we have this very f- fight. There's this fight early on with uh, Jason Schwartzman as Spot, uh, who is, you know, the most C-list of C-list villains. And I also have a habit about villains who are just desperate to be recognized as villains, especially when you compare it to stuff like the first Spider-Verse film where all the villains are just dripping with presence. And I wasn't loving it. But over time, he takes a really interesting space in the story. It's just that it's, I think, because it's such a long film. Though you may be, like, visually satisfied pretty much 100% of the time, you might find yourself wondering, like, where is this going? When is it all going to come together? And I think that by the end of things, you will be pleased that you went to go see this film. Yeah. I mean, I actually love that scene. I I think what I kind of like about this Spider-Man is it has different skills, you know? Mm -hmm. So we have the big fight in the Guggenheim, we have the big fight in this kind of Spider-Man uh, HQ with like hundreds of Spider-Men coming after Miles. But then we have this little fight in a, like a bodega yeah. um, w- with this this dumb character spot. Uh, and it's really, I mean, his, 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 his powers quite hard to describe. He has these kind of like holes, which, which are kind of like other dimensions. Like portals. But, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's like, the fight is really visually inventive and it's the kind of thing that, live action just could never manage yeah uh, and and it's done so well and rendered so well in animation and it's it's just funny and it's like it's like it's like an action scene which is just full of humor full of gags yeah. ev- like ev- which is a bit like a comic book you know yeah like not to mention he's not meant to be like a ninja super villain who's like taken over he's like very apologetic oh, yeah. he's like oh i'm robbing you sorry about this and he's like falling over and knocking everything down yeah he's trying to steal like this atm and he's yeah. just had to make an absolute hash of it and miles is like yeah. uh, cooking up like a, a pasty while he's doing it you know it's like it's just so that's like to me reminds me of the comics because quite often spider-man comics are about these like petty little villains mm-hmm. like he, he, like i say he is normally the neighborhood spider-man this is usually what the comics are like, yeah. like spider-man usually isn't fighting uh the multiverse this is like that was very much kind of an avengers uh, idea so yeah i love the textures of that i loved like the, the those little moments um but yeah like, like I say, the the big issue is you're right. It's not exactly clear who the, who that antagonist is. Mm-hmm. We will have a lot of red herrings, and it end, the thing is, it ends in such a an annoyingly annoying way. But it's the kind of ending that you're really desperate to see the next one. Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, it, yeah. It's it, it ends on a great note. But again, like that's the thing. All the ending is is just showing you what's going to happen in the next one, who the bad guy really is, what's all going on. 
And yes, like the film itself doesn't involve these great characters or this amazing twist. It's rather just showing you the third film is going to be really, really good. I think there's still lots of enjoyment to get out of it, but it might, it's really just whetting your appetite, right? So you might, you might walk away feeling a little bit like, oh, I wish I could have just gone straight into the third one. Yeah, it's 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 all set up, but it's I think it's great set up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and in a way, it's a it's a shame they didn't make them all in a one and then release them closer. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like I really, I kind of wish it was out in a month. You know, I feel like. But the fact as well that this took, I I, I don't even think that it's been in production that long. I think it took like three years to make, which is just insane. I'd have to fact check that, but it's just insane considering just how elaborate it is visually, just how complicated. It must be to create something that's technically unique. Yeah, I mean, every frame has like like a million gags, like so much detail. Um, yeah, uh, I do worry though that the writer strike might slow down the next one. It could be a while before we mm-hmm. get to see the new one. Unfortunately, yeah, uh, February twenty twenty one was when they were working on the screenplay, so that's two years. Um, that's amazing. Which yeah, I mean, but like I say, they've got it down to like a perfect formula. I'm not going to go into the third one wondering, oh, have they run out of ideas? Because they've definitely not. It's like, it's second nature to them to just come up with characters and visuals that are just worlds apart and stuff we've never even seen before. Yeah. And and the exciting thing is it means, like, I think all superhero films and all animations really have to step up their game because this is the, this is the benchmark now, you know? You cannot just, like, put out another boring Avengers film. You well, have to. under, you know, I was telling you this when we were on our way here uh the best animated feature nominations for the most recent academy awards obviously del toro's pinocchio won because it's just incredibly beautiful and kind of grotesque and and interesting but i saw puss in boots the last wish and i was like no one cares about that that's just a sequel to a spin-off i've watched that film now it's nuts it's definitely trying to like step into the level of detail of spider-verse in terms that like no character has a rigid model. It's not like Shrek. It's not like these are just rigged 3D models. It's that every single shot, every frame is its own like crazy storybook cartoon. Um, and yeah, I think that you mentioned Mitchell's and the Machines in response to that. I think that, yeah, definitely like animation is now looking to Spider-Verse and it is now kind of a new benchmark. Yeah, and the team behind Mitchell vs. the Machine, they're doing the new uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film, which mm-hmm. looks like from the clips I've seen, it looks amazing as well. So, yeah, I, I feel like it's going to push people to, like, mm-hmm. push the boundaries a bit more, which yeah. is good. So our second film today is a bit of a change of pace. It's uh, Chevalier. This film is set a few years before the French Revolution, and uh, it's a kind of sweeping costume drama based on the early life of French composer Joseph Boulogne, who was the first European composer of African descent. Now, Joseph was born the illegitimate son of an African slave and a French plantation owner. But despite his kind of lowly beginnings, he climbed the heights of French society thanks to his virtuosic music talent. He counted uh, Marie Antoinette as one of his biggest champions. He actually became a key member of her court. Um, So the film has this kind of amazing true story of this kind of extraordinary person at his heart. It's got a sexy cast. It's got a saucy affair at the heart of it. It's got sword jewels. It's got violin jewels. It's got Mini Driver, but Lewis, is it any good? The way you describe it makes it sound fantastic. Um, and there's a lot to like about this film. I'll get on to that, but I do think it could have done with a bit more depth. You know, some period dramas 
good as they are, feel like they go on forever. Uh, whereas I was sort of surprised at how quickly this one ended. It felt like we've not really had it fleshed out. You know, last episode we were talking about uh, Local Hero, and what was great about that film was these like tiny little scenes that do nothing but sort of deepen the characters, just show them hanging out. And I'm not saying we needed to see the characters hanging out, but there is no scenes where we take a breather or humanize our characters. We don't know what makes Shivali joyful, like, or if he feels joy, or does he only feel the need to compete? Because you know, these characters just live and breathe for the plot to move on to the next scene. Um, and I like the plot. I, I thought there was like a good structure to it. We There's this little competition between Chevalier and Christophe Gluck over who gets to be the lead of the Paris opera. And that feels like a fun little conflict that's quickly superseded by the seriousness of the French Revolution. And, you know, Marie Antoinette changes from this like interesting, quite radical queen who uplifts Chevalier and, and, and likes him and likes the effect that he has on her court. She likes seeing how a person of colour is challenging all the, the sort of pride and the avarice of the people around her. But then as the revolution becomes more of a thing lingering in the background, she has to kowtow to her court. And she you, you realise that nothing is more important to her at all than just sustaining power. So a nice little anti-monarchist sort of shaking things up story in there. There's other characters. There's a character, the Marquis de Montalembert, who's this big French henchman. He introduces himself to Chevalier with a speech about how he's protecting France from traitors. And whilst doing so, he's like lighting a very, very, very big cannon. So nobody's subtle. There's no subtlety to it. But the scenes themselves are quite memorable. It actually reminded me of Charles Dance in Game of Thrones. He's obviously one of like Game of Thrones' most iconic performances and the first scene we meet him he's uh like skinning he's gutting and skinning a deer which is gory it's meticulous a deer is a symbol of his rival's house so again it's like that sort of tv positioning right it's not subtle at all but it's very memorable and i think that's the strength of this film i think that even though it's not perfect it's got big impactful scenes like chevalier plays his pro-revolution opera without wearing a powdered wig. He just sort of shows his cornrows in public. The scenes are taking this obscure historical figure, they're placing him on the big screen, and now more people know a story that they otherwise wouldn't have, right? So it's by no means the most, you know, historically perfect article on Chevalier's life, but it might give you the curiosity you need to go out and read a book about him or find some other information. And, uh, yeah, so even though it feels it's pretty simple and it feels maybe more like an ep, like a long episode of a TV show than than a film, it's got style, it's got structure. Uh, I think it'll stick in people's heads, but I don't know what you think. I think that you maybe disagree with me. Yeah, I thought it was a little bit rubbish actually. <laughs> I mean, I think maybe what I, I found the first half really like poor actually. Like, um, I mean, I, I should say it opens in the most cringeworthy way possible. Like, I've 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 read some reviews where people praise the opening. They say it's like the high point, but to me, it was embarrassing. It's like so so Joseph uh, Ballon, who is Chevalier, I should have actually set that up. Chevalier <laughs> de Georges, um, the name he's the title he's yeah. given by uh, Marie Antoinette. You know, he challenges Mozart to a duel uh, <laughs> with the violins, and it's like on paper, okay, that's a, a, a fun idea, but then. An execution. What what are we saying here? Are we saying that this guy who we've never heard of is better than Mozart? Okay, if that's how you're set up your film, saying this guy is better than Mozart, can we maybe see him perform a bit or understand why he become better than Mozart? I feel like the film really um is really superficial. You know, we we're just told this guy's amazing. 
Um, it's interesting. It starts. It starts with a kind of origin story of him. Uh, he arrives um, in Paris. He's been dropped off by his father, this kind of plantation owner, who's told him you have to be the best. You're 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 a person of color. Um, you know you will not be accepted unless you are exceptional. That's an interesting premise, and I think it would be really interesting to see psychologically how that affects someone. Because I presume that is the clue to his greatness. It's because he felt he had to be the best. And maybe he was better than the Mozart, you know. Um, I, I, I don't know. Like the, the the problem is, like a lot of his music was lost um, during N- Napoleon's reign. Like mm-hmm. so, maybe he is. He was as great. And the reason that Vienna became rose up to be the kind of great like bed of classical music is because France had this revolution and all its music was lost. But I want a film about that. I think that's interesting. I think I want to see him growing up. How he the, the drive to become a great player what happens is we see him as an eight-year-old for a scene mm-hmm. and then instantly he's a genius you know like how, how does someone become a genius i think i think that's more interesting than seeing somebody who has a genius mm-hmm. um you know there's no kind of nuance to that we're told instantly he's amazing um and we just have to accept it as given so the, f- so the first half feels really really rushed and superficial like i think that's, that's really interesting being a young black man growing up in france that would be a really interesting story and then i think his story during the revolution um, would be interesting as well because it, it, it turns out he was a, a key part of the revolution. He was like a spy um, for the resistance. He um, like led an army of black soldiers. So that would be fascinating. But instead we have this kind of, I think, quite fluffy, superficial story of how he tried to be the uh, head of the, the Paris Opera. Like It seems to me that's like a footnote to this guy's great story. So I, I didn't quite understand why that was the focus of the film. Um, because I don't think it tells you that much about him. It, I guess it tells you why he became a revolutionary, which which doesn't really um, sit that well with me. So the, it suggests that the reason he became a revolutionary is because he was a bit put out. Mm-hmm. His nose was put out of joint because Marie Antoinette sort of didn't stick up for him and didn't yeah. give him a job. So it's like not that, to me that is not a good reason to find this guy heroic. You know, what you've identified the very first scene where Mozart is. I, I think that like they've kind of like been a bit cheeky and sort of modernized it because Mozart is like bouncing about the stage as he plays the violin sort of I'm willing to bet that back in those days if you went to go see like a baroque composer they would just stand and look very professional but he's kind of like a rock star and he's like taking requests from the audience and um well I actually think that's actually quite true to um classical music because because that was like the popular music of the yeah. time I think it was quite more lively I think nowadays we think of classical music as quite staid but I think actually back in the day it was kind of fun so I don't know if it was exactly like that but yeah I, I, I can't say for sure I don't know enough about classical music but then Chevalier comes in challenges Mozart to a duel and they're really mugging it at this point like Mozart is like ah okay then like that what we're seeing through this most like very like ham-fisted performance is that Mozart is proud. He's so proud of his talents that he's certain that any any foolish person who would challenge him, much less a person of color, he could demolish. And then it turns out, surprise, surprise, Shafali is great. That's our introduction to his skills. That scene happens again, pretty much, uh, when this big sort of like rivalry for who gets to lead the Paris Opera begins. He is spurred on by Marie Antoinette to go up to Gluck and sort of say, like, ah, ha, ha, shame that they chose the wrong person. And only because Gluck is so proud does he, like, actually accept this little jewel that they're putting off. So it's the thing where, like, yeah, we very quickly skip over any of his upbringing. And I think that maybe the reason that happened is because perhaps they they, they were trying to show 
you know, him moving through French society. And he could only really do that when he had the privilege of great skills uh, to go up to these people and challenge them. But I agree. I think that, like, the focus is in a really interesting place. I think that's maybe why it feels more like a TV episode to me than a film. Um, But, yeah, like I say, I think that there's, like, things to like about this film. There's things to enjoy. I just do think that it's, like, not perfect by any means. Yeah. I think the film looks really good. I think Mm -hmm. it's, like, the the period detail is fantastic. So if you're into, like, like costume dramas for the visuals, I think it's definitely worth seeing. Um, You know, I thought, uh, I should say it was Kevin uh, Harrison Jr. who uh, plays Chevalier plays joseph he he really looks the part you know he's a great looking guy he's got charisma i did think though he was maybe misdirected in a way i feel, I, I don't know if it's quite his fault or just the script is a bit shallow but yeah he just came across as a bit kind of callow mm-hmm. as a character and i've seen him i've only seen him in one thing actually before uh, i don't know if you saw that horror loose from a few years ago loose l-u-c-e i think so you said. no i've um, not seen it that was really interesting, and he has quite a sinister side. Mm-hmm. Um, but here he's he's, he's he's just playing a kind of like eye candy, t- you know, talented genius. You know, there's not much to him. Like I feel like we didn't really get to know him. That he well. falls pretty quickly into a like slightly disconnected, uh, distant rock star. That's yeah. kind of how they want to characterize him, I think. But yeah. that's sort of something that we all know. That's like a trope. That's a cliche. Yeah, and even when he's radicalized to like go against the court. You know, like I say, it's, it's done. He does it for like the wrong reasons. It's 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 about revenge. Yeah. Um, which again, I think that's maybe the more rock and roll version, right? It's very like, um, yeah, it's very like he gets snubbed, so he uses his skills as an artist to attack these people. But there's never really much of a relationship built with, um, with the revolutionaries and why they're revolting. And you know, it reminded me of. Um, uh, fast time that we did uh, the other week. Is that the right? Is that what it's called? Have I not misremembered that? The French one? Uh, with the uh, Full time. Full time, sorry. Fast time. <laughs> um, where revolution there is depicted as something that's happening in the background. As we're trying to get to work, we can just look from our train window and see smoke coming from the city. That's very much how it's done in this film as well. Um, you know, we're riding our golden carriages down the street and you can see people with like carrying signs in the background. But the thing about full-time is that the reason it's in the background is because we're in a position where we can't interface with the with the revolution because we're, we're at the lowest class of society. Whereas, you know, the whole point of this film is that we're at the very top. We're in the upper echelon of society. And there's very few characters, d- despite the fact that it's about the French Revolution. The French Revolution is an important plot point. There's no characters who really get to embody it, who get to like lay out the principles of the French Revolution, namely that it came from very poor people, very desperate people. Yeah, exactly. We we have a meeting where you, you know, and they go through some of the kind of like aims of mm-hmm. the revolution. You know, liberty, fraternity, etc. But um, but yeah, you're right. There's never like a sense of like the poverty of of France at the time. Like people are people are, like starving in the street, and because it's like set in this kind of upper class uh, milieu like mm-hmm. like we never see that and the only time that Chevalier s- mentions the poor is again is, is it's like um it's an attack on Marie Antoinette he, he doesn't seem to care at all um even though he comes from this kind of you know his, his mother was a slave he's got this kind of lowly background um, story he he seems to not identify with with that kind of class of people mm-hmm. there's one scene where he is 
Here's the thing. It, it's a scene with virtually no dialogue, so I don't know if he's being introduced to Paris's black diaspora or if he's being reintroduced or if these are this is a community he's already part of or it's something where he's just being taken into these streets where people are playing music and he starts playing music with them and it's a pretty well put together scene it's quite touching and it also represents when he begins to change allegiances in the film but it's all done without dialogue and again like these characters don't show up again like they kind of are just set pieces for his transition into a different kind of character so it's got a bit of an issue with taking you know the historicity of this period drama really is just about uh it's really just a plot device that's being used to push characters in one direction or another and like i said the characters themselves only really live for the plot they only talk about the imminent plot points there's no extra depth to their characters there's no like detailing there's no fleshing out of who they are what they like what they don't like so it's it's pretty bare bones and then even the fear he has at the kind of center of the film with this married woman uh, it's a little bit bloodless, you know. Like, uh, like uh, there's not kind of much heat there, mm-hmm. um, and I just felt like, oh, you know, I want, I want, I want a period drama to get your blood pumping. You know, if you're gonna have that kind of body stuff, it's it's, it's just it seemed a bit of a tame and a bit kind of surface level again. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame because sh- I'm sure there is a kind of great film to make about um, Chevalier of Joseph de Boulogne. Like, he, like he's clearly got a great biography, like and a great a great backstory. Yeah, so maybe this is the first of maybe many films are going to... Like I say, like the best part of this film is that it introduces people to this story. Um, And it's an interesting story. I think even if the film itself is a little bit lacking, I think that the the fact that this is in cinemas might bring people into the curiosity about this story. And then that might inspire whoever's going to make the next Chevalier film that does in fact do a lot better than this one yeah and it seems that scholars are finding his music all the time as well so like, we do hear some music and it's not quite exactly clear if what we're hearing was what chevalier wrote but some of the music is really beautiful and the, the, probably the best scene i think is like like a, a scene where he puts on a concert for the revolutionaries and, and he plays some music there Th- that was probably the highlight and i think but unfortunately it was right at the end and it had been through a kind of slog of like quite again scenes. it feels like a season finale yeah. it does like it sort of like that's the big the big recital that it's all been leading towards. Um, and that's when, like, two characters have a big confrontation and it all comes to a head. Yeah. And then it's over. Okay, that was Chevalier. Um, you know, we didn't love it, but what, what are you going to do? But Chevalier is a costume drama. And now, Anna, he had an idea that off of the back of Chevalier, we should maybe talk about costume dramas. Uh, unfortunately, Anna, he's not here to give her ideas. But, uh, you know, Lewis and I are going to, struggle on um so the costume drama does get a bad rep i think um i think partly because it's seen as a kind of middle brow genre and it's kind of quite formulaic but we want to know what are the costume dramas that break the mold that do something a bit more interesting um that that sort of yeah that are a bit fresher um than something like chevalier which i think borrowed from a lot of cliches and and sort of a lot of it was about the costumes and the style rather than actually the substance. So, Lewis, did you have a film that you wanted to chat about? Yeah, um, I went for something that's quite similar to Chevalier. It's Wild from 1997 with Stephen Fry as Oscar Wilde. Uh, it's, you know, a period drama that follows a genius who's rejected and persecuted by society because they've sort of locked him in this social strata that he can't escape from. So, yeah, a little bit of an overlap. But I just think it's an interesting film. Stephen Fry is pretty wonderfully cast. He he looks like Oscar Wilde, and he's a well-known fan of Oscar Wilde's work. There's a show, I can't 
remember off the top of my head what it was. I think it was called More Fool Me, where Fry explains that his exposure to the importance of being earnest on TV and then his interest in Wilde's poetry after that helped him realize he was gay. So there's a very personal, uh, sort of dutiful performance happening there. He's clearly not really used to working on a big-budget film set. A lot of his presence, it's just the delivery of his dialogue. Um, And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It actually creates this quite subtle feeling that though Oscar Wilde is really confident and witty, he's under pressure and he's performing a part to kind of mask his feelings of, of not belonging. But yeah... Stephen Fry is not maybe not the most dynamic actor. Uh, not a great screen kisser. Um, sort of mashes his face. He's a bit of a face masher. But yeah, I do think that his sort of... his He's got a little bit of a feeling of alienation and that really works with the character. What makes this an interesting historical drama is... Uh, well, it has all the stuff that you want out of a good costume drama, aesthetically. You know, it's not Bridgerton. It's not just hot people in top hats. Uh, there's so much invention and creativity that's put behind the costuming and the set design. Everyone's always in, like, these really, like, beautiful, like, floral patterns because in the Victorian era, people did not just wear black suits. Wilde himself is usually wearing really ostentatious, delicate suits. Nothing quite as garish as the very bright pink suit that he's wearing on the film's poster, but they do a really good job of making him sort of feel spectacularly out of place. Um, And the way that Victorian society itself is depicted, they make sure to highlight everything that Wilde actually criticised in his writing. So in Importance of Being Earnest, he was very much attacking, like, the Victorian sensibility, like, their prudeness, their two-facedness, their, like, repression... There's a, a a scene where he's sitting and having a drink with uh, with his lover, who's Jude Law, um, and his tyrannical, like traditionalist father. Uh, Wilde wins him over. They find common ground. He like charms him, but then the guy just sort of, regardless, continues in his big defamation of Wilde for his homosexuality. These accusations against him, and then when Wilde himself is on trial, he gives this great impassioned speech about the love that dare not speak its name about how victorian society has destroyed the idea of any kind of love between two men and it does seem to affect the crowd it riles them up but then it's still like bang gavel you're guilty that's it um so he's he's shown as this genius we find him funny there's a bit where these kids come up to him with one of his love letters and it's like hey someone's offered us 60 pounds to to publish your your love letter. They're trying to blackmail him. And he's like, oh, well, you have to take it. I've never gotten, got paid more than £60 for any of my writing. He just sort of like wins everyone over. I think eventually they say like, oh, there's no point trying to blackmail you. You'll just laugh at us. But he's still sort of like trapped in this narrative. It was only ever going to end one way. He's never going to go free. It's an interesting how it's using its position as a period drama, sort of like how Chevalier repeatedly brings up the impending French Revolution to kind of act as a prophecy. It characterizes really specific parts of this time period it still makes it look really romantic and really serene but it also just has really good character and historical writing underneath it yeah and uh, am i right in saying that was one of jude law's first performances i remember it's one that he got a lot of uh i couldn't tell you if that was his very first but it was Orlando Bloom's first on-screen appearance. He has, I think, an uncredited role as a rent boy. He just was a very, very briefly. Um, But yeah, Jude Law is very young in it, so it wouldn't surprise me if it was one of his earliest roles. But he's great. He's just meant to be like an absolute lunatic. And that's kind of... uh, Like, Bozy Douglas was Wilde's sort of like 
long-term partner. And uh, I think it is historically informed how nuts he was. Like, he was just famously, like, he was rich, had this terrible father, was prone to intense emotional outbursts, uh, smashes stuff. So again, it's not all just, like, you know, very proper Pride and Prejudice sort of stuff. It's, like, quite manic. It's, it's, all, it's all done quite manically. Yeah. Funny you mentioned Pride and Prejudice, because mm-hmm. uh, my uh, favourite costume drama of recent years uh, is a Jane Austen adaptation. So, I'm, so we're leaving Victorian era mm-hmm. uh, and moving to uh, the Regency for Love and Friendship, uh, the 2016 film from uh, director Whit Stillman, which was based on an unfinished um, book by Jane Austen called Lady Susan. Now, I love a good Jane Austen adaptation, but they do kind of fall usually into two camps. So they're usually the kind of straight-laced one that are kind of very stately kind of prestige cinema, you know, like Sense and Sensibility or Pride and Prejudice, you know. Um, or you have the kind of more modern adaptations set in the real world. Mm-hmm. So taking Austen and putting her in like LA, for example, for Clueless. But what Wilt Stillman manages to do is make an authentic period film version of Jane Austen that feels utterly modern. And I think part of why this works is because Stillman and Austen are interested in the same thing. Like, so Stillman's contemporary films, like, well, I mean, I say contemporary films are usually set a little bit in the past, but so uh, Metropolitan uh, or Last Days of Disco, which is set in the 80s, he's concerned with things like matters of etiquette and class and honour among these kind of little milieus, which is, of course, what Jane Austen was her bread and butter as well. So normally in a Jane Austen adaptation, there's a lot of attention placed on costume and this kind of regency setting um and that's kind of all kind of foregrounded um you know because it's a prestige film that's what people want to see um but stillman is much more in tune i think with the humor of jane austen so his film is much more interested in in the content of her novels rather than the kind of like beauty and like the the kind of um you know the, the the setting so you know so his so his his films kind of move more like a modern comedy you know so like the jokes the jokes are the jokes that are um, in the Austin books, you know, that he doesn't write any new jokes, but they just land so much better because there's a kind of real kind of briskness to the way he directs and edits. Um, and the performances as well are like feel modern, even though they're, they're kind of, you know, they're aping uh, Jane Austen's words. But there's a just a, there's some sort of sense of these feel modern characters, they feel more real than what we're used to seeing. You know, it's, it's got the gorgeous costumes and setting as well, but like I said, it's the characters and the kind of amazing dialogue which is foregrounded, and and I think there's also the fact he's he's based he's taking Lady Susan, which is this kind of like under um, underknown novel. Like I've mm-hmm. I've never read it. I, yeah. I, it's like incomplete. It's like it's very much a footnote to Jane Austen's uh, like like bibliography, and and I think that's that's really useful, and that's why it feels fresh because we've seen a dozen adaptations of Emma and Pride and Prejudice and they have become like we expect mm-hmm. the same kind of thing and I, f- I feel like filmmakers like, are, want to give audiences the exact same thing as what they've had before so if you take one of these more obscure texts instead you can put your own spin on things so you know so we have Lady Susan who's a really interesting character she's played by Kate Beckinsale who's a really underrated actor you know obviously she's probably I think maybe best known for the Underworld series like mm-hmm. like um, like she's, she's kind of you know, she does these kind of action films, but actually she is an amazing comic actor. And initially she feels like an airhead. She feels like the, like the baddie in the film. Like, because, um, you know, she's having this affair with this younger man. She's trying to marry off her daughter. And, you know, she's she's basically, and I think maybe even in the novel, she's meant to be the villain. But what 
Whitman does is he really makes us empathise with her. So because she's going against um, like the Regency era morals, in a way she's like becomes very modern. Like mm-hmm. her, her ideas appall everyone around her. But to us actually, and they appall us initially as well because we're like, we, we've seen this character a million times yeah. in other Austin adaptations. But eventually you realize actually this is a modern why she why she why she why is she appalling is because she has a modern way of thinking she's not going to settle for any old buffoon she wants to go out with this younger man you know she wants to be happy and that's actually like goes against most of the ideas of regency you know women tend to have to go along with society they don't want to you know that's that's the big challenge for all the female characters in uh, jane austen is like how do you um how do you satisfy yourself as a woman mm-hmm. but also satisfy your family and satisfy you know the the the, the, the mores that you live in and uh, so so what's interesting is this kate, kate beckinsale's performance just kind of blows that out of the water and that becomes the focus and that's an interesting way of approaching it so it's so he, so whitman i think he really makes us empathize with her he makes her a hero and yeah he he, he makes a film which is a jane austen adaptation but at the center of it you have this really modern idea of a woman Mm-hmm. which is just refreshing it just it just makes the whole thing fizz so every interaction now becomes really interesting so every every line of dialogue reads differently because you're seeing it from the way jane austen wrote it but from uh the, the modern perspective as well so it's hard to explain what he's actually doing but but yeah i feel like he he is tuned into austen's um humor and because of that i think it's just sort of zips along um in a way that the other ones feel more stately you know he doesn't mm-hmm. he doesn't have to feel he has to hold on these beautiful sceneries or, or beautiful settings or these ponderous characters actually the characters fizz along yeah I, i've never seen love and friendship but you've definitely made it sound interesting it seems to me like i think the last jane austen thing that i really watched was the 2005 one with uh, with kira knightley and in that one the i think that the dialogue actually holds up really really well like even though it's it's the same script as it is from the the book and it's all really, really dense and really, really elaborate sort of purple prose, really flowery language. Um, the performances just make it land and you can kind of laugh along with it, particularly when it's all about people who sort of behave in a very over-rehearsed way. Like uh, uh, Tom Hollander shows up as Mr. Collins and does his whole like very rehearsed like these are the finest roast potatoes I think I've ever eaten. And everyone's laughing at him because he's like he's clearly read a book on how to behave like a normal human. Uh, because that's what society was like back then. And though I really, really enjoyed that film, I didn't really feel like there was much to go from there. Like, I felt like I'd had my fill of, of Jane Austen on screen. I felt like, I think lots of people agree that the, the, the 2005 one with Keira Knightley and Matthew McFadden is like a pretty definitive one. But this sounds interesting because it seems to, I don't know, just play into roles that we don't expect with Jane Austen. Like, for example, getting your kids married off it's kind of an antagonistic thing in Pride and Prejudice, right? That's what that's what Mrs. Bennet does. She kind of is a bit more villainous, but it sounds to me like now we're following a character who's doing this. Well, what I think he's doing is he's because I think I guess maybe partly because it's an unfinished novel, but what he's doing is he's adding a lot of his own stuff into it. So he's mm. kind of reading between the lines of maybe what, or, or, like I say, imagining what Jane Austen maybe meant by mm-hmm. this. So, so I think sometimes with the adaptations, they're very faithful, um, which means that the follow regency mores mm-hmm. but because he's not being faithful in a way well he has been faithful in terms of sensibility like the, the jokes 
And uh, like I say, this kind of obsession with etiquette and class is very much at the centre of the film. But in, in other ways, he's not faithful at all because he's inventing his own things. Mm-hmm. He's, he's bringing in like, uh, he's like foregrounding certain characters um, in place of others. So, he's, so you, can, you can tell, you can imagine um, when you see a character come on, oh, that could be, a, that will be the main character in this film. But actually it will go off uh, in a tangent and follow a little side character who, and, and, you know, or, or a character who might seem initially unappealing. And again, in, in, in Pride and Prejudice, they might be the fool, actually mm-hmm. becomes like heroic. So not just Lady Lady J, um, Lady Susan, but other characters who seem like they are the, the cannon fodder for these type of film uh, adaptations are actually become more interesting. So it's it's a film it's a film that's constantly surprising you and characters are surprising you. Um, I think because again he's working with something that was unfinished and he's because of that he's not been faithful and he's been allowed to kind of go free and invent things um which i wish more people would do i feel like sometimes because the gen- jane austen um uh crew are so uh, obsessed with these characters yeah. it's, it's hard to to go off it's a bit like um what's that improv group uh the, the jane austen uh, oh i don't know if there's a jane austen in- uh, i can't remember the name but they, 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 they like uh, it's almost like he's doing a version of that ostentatious ostentatious yes yeah, so, 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 so they're, they're they're like i've seen them a few times they're great great fun and they, they what they do is they take um jane austen and they and they they do a you know, they, they invent, <laughs> they, they take the basic plot, but like add in new stuff. There was also that recent um, Pride and Prejudice sort of, which played at uh, Lyceum, mm-hmm. um, which was fantastic. Again, that was like a musical, but but again, it read between the lines and, and the minor characters became the major characters. I think if, were I to read, uh, I think, yeah, were I, to, were I to watch Love and Friendship, much like how I would watch Chevalier and then I really actually want to know the real story of, Joseph Bologna and like work out where they got inventive and what they introduced and was that really the music was that really how it went because here's the thing there's, there's no law that says when you tell a historical story or even an adaptation you have to remain re- remotely faithful if I were to watch Love and Friendship I'd really want to read the source material and see how much of it's invented I remember thinking the same thing I was most interested in Little Women after the Greta Gerwig film came out and I was like I thought I remembered I couldn't remember what I'd remembered because I'd read it so young I was like, these characters are all familiar, but they change it about structurally, don't they? They they have this like um, this book ended narrative of her selling the book, this time skip that keeps recurring throughout. It's done in a lot more of a like clean, inventive film way. So yeah, that sounds like a really interesting adaptation, especially when you're working with something that wasn't even complete in the first place. Yeah, and it's hilarious. I I, I cannot understate how funny it is. And like I say, the amazing thing is these are Austin's words, but they're just like brought to life. In, uh, in such funny ways so I, I would highly recommend this film and all what someone's films but uh, especially um, Love and Friendship so that's us it was a shorter episode mm-hmm. than normal but um, I think Lewis we, we made it through we did it we did it we did it we did it. Th- we were done yeah um, you'll be glad to know Peter will be back next time to host um, Anna Heat uh, all being well will be back as well so will Lewis and I so all I can say is follow us all on uh, Twitter. You can follow um, Lewis on Lou underscore Rob. Um, I'm at Jamie Dunn Esquire. Um, you can follow Anahit on Anahit Ruse. Um, you can follow Peter on Peter Simpson with all the vowels taken out. And if you like this episode or you want to do some requests for the future, you should contact. So you can email us at cineskinny at theskinny.co.uk. That's been all from us. Mm -hmm. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.